You're listening to The Movement, a Holy Family School of Faith podcast. Welcome to The Movement. My name is Chloe Langer, and I am the digital media publisher here at Holy Family School of Faith. You know, we make evangelization too complicated. All you need to do to share your faith is lead people to Jesus through friendship, good conversation, and the rosary. The Movement is a brand new podcast that features different digital series to equip you to share your faith. Here, you'll find audio from Holy Family School of Faith lectures, classes, and events all in one convenient location for you. We're covering everything from apologetics to the interior life. Our first series is on interior peace, something we're all longing for a little bit more of these days. Dr. Troy Hinkle, vice president and co-founder of School of Faith and host of the podcast Sharing Life, will be talking about what peace is, how you can gain that in your daily life, and what to do to maintain peace. Join us for this three-part series and make sure you subscribe to The Movement on all of your favorite podcast platforms so you never miss a new series in the future. This is the School of Faith class entitled Interior Peace. And we're going to begin with prayer, then I'll introduce myself and uh, I'll introduce our next three weeks together for this class. But first, let's begin, as always, by placing ourselves in the presence of Almighty God in whom we live and move and have our being. And we call upon him in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, you have given us your spirit of peace, the spirit of truth, the spirit of consolation, to remain in us, that you may take up your abode in our souls, so that you and your triune Godhead may dwell in us, thus bringing us the source of this peace. How can we begin to thank you for such a wonderful gift? And yet we do offer you our thanks, and indeed our praise. For this is fitting, a fitting tribute to you, for your generosity and your mercy. We ask this time to be blessed and made fruitful, so that we in turn can bring peace and be harbingers of your light into this darkened world. We entrust ourselves into the hands and prayers of Mary, your Immaculate Mother and ours, and St. Joseph, patron of the interior life, so that through their prayers we may come to be these temples of peace. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In John's Gospel, <clears throat> John dedicates several chapters to a long discourse of Jesus to his apostles during his Last Supper, which is the first Mass. And the words that Jesus offers in these discourses, in these long speeches that he gives, are his most heartfelt because these are the last words that he leaves with his apostles before he enters into his passion and his death and his suffering. So these words are heartfelt and take on the depth of meaning because it is during this particular episode with his apostles at the Last Supper that our dear Lord chose to give these words. And in John chapter 14, verse 27, we hear Jesus say this, and this is something that should sound familiar to us because we hear it at every Mass. He says this, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, 
not as the world gives do I give to you. And so we're given this peace of Christ. And it's this opportunity at the Last Supper before his passion and death that he chose to deliver this message and to offer this gift. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. So what is this peace of which the Lord speaks? And if he's giving us this peace, then why are so few of us experiencing in an ongoing way this gift of peace? In my experience in teaching adult Catholics, I find that we're just as prone as anybody to experience worry and anxiety and stress and fear and discouragement and anger and resentment, all of these emotions and experiences that rob us of this peace, this peace that Jesus is leaving. Before we define this peace that Jesus, Jesus gives, it might help to lay out the structure of the next couple weeks of the course. This lesson I want to discuss, what is it that causes us to lose this peace? Next week, then, we'll look at how do I gain the peace that's been given to me. And then in the third week, we'll look how do I maintain the peace once I've gained it? How do I sustain it? So that's the layout of our class. So today we'll look at how we will define our terms and we'll look at how we lose it. Next week, how we gain it. And then the third week, how we sustain it in an ongoing way. So I'll provide you the tools, the knowledge, the know-how, the gifts of the church so we can understand how to maintain this peace, how to gain and maintain it. But first, let's define our terms. What is this peace of which our Lord speaks? First, let's just say what it is not. He gives us a clue in verse 27 where he says, Not as the world gives do I give to you. The peace that he's giving is not a peace that's found in the world. It's not something the world can duplicate. It's not going to be replicated through politics, through military means, through prosperity and wealth, through right relationships, through a good feeling. This is not the peace. These can help with peace. These can be fruits of peace. But these are not the sources of the peace of which Jesus speaks. Not as the world gives. He says to his apostles, this is because the world does not know him. That the world cannot receive him or his spirit that will bring this peace. Why do you think that is? Why cannot the world receive this peace? Why cannot the world know this Jesus? Well, this is due to what in other passages in the Bible St. Paul calls carnal desire. He says this in Romans 8, verses 6 and 7, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Carnal desire. What is that? Well, the word carny, like when we hear chili con carne, uh, that just means chili with meat. Carne is Latin for meat or flesh. Only the flesh of which the Bible and St. Paul speaks is not the flesh that covers our bones, not the stuff that covers us here. He means the flesh 
that is tainted by original sin, tainted by these desires of the flesh. This is what he means by carnal desire or carnality. That the world is tied up with desires of sex and pleasure and power and status and money. These things fill the world with desire and those who are attached to the world. But we should not be attached to the world. We should see ourselves merely as pilgrims in this world. And thus our hearts are to be open and remain open to receive the gift. That implies that we must be sufficiently disciplined from these carnal desires. Thus the world operates with broken and selfish goals, tends to these desires of the flesh, and therefore cannot receive the knowledge and peace that Christ brings. That's why he says, not as the world gives do I give to you. Furthermore, the world conceives of this peace as an absence of conflict, as in there's no war, therefore we're at peace. There's a famous rabbi of the Middle Ages named Moses Maimonides. In fact, the Jews have a saying that from Moses, i.e. the Moses of the Ten Commandments, from Moses to Moses, meaning Moses Maimonides, there's never been anyone like Moses. Because both the Moses of the Ten Commandments and the Moses Maimonides of the Middle Ages, he died in 1204, there's never been any figures quite as great as these two men. And Moses Maimonides, in spite of his great intellect, refused to believe in the Messiah because he said that the prophets of old made it clear that when the Messiah comes, he will be the Prince of Peace. Yet, Maimonides said, we do not know times of peace. All we know are times of war. Therefore, this Jesus cannot be the Messiah. You see, he was expecting a peace merely in worldly terms and thus could not recognize the kind of peace nor the kind of Messiah that would bring it, in spite of his massive intellect. Nor is this peace identified with feelings, because it is possible sometimes for us to feel good about something that is actually evil and is bringing us destruction and harm. We can feel good about these things. In fact, the enemy wants us to feel good about these things. It's common for people who are caught in some habitual serious sin to feel good about it. Thus, if peace were merely in the feelings, people, people could feel at peace with behaviors that are bringing about their own destruction, that are destroying their own souls. So Jesus is not speaking of these kinds of peace, relational peace, peace of absence of conflict. He never promised us a world without this kind of trouble, a world without war or conflict. He said the poor we will always have with us, which implies that there will always be travail and tribulation and suffering. Then what kind of peace is he offering? There are many saints, many, who experience serious tribulations and trials and sufferings, and yet we're never without peace. We're never without joy. So what is this peace? Well, to put it in the positive, it is nothing less 
then the presence of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in our soul. Peace is the triune Godhead dwelling in our soul. And we'll speak more about this in the ensuing weeks when we discuss how do we gain this peace. But suffice it to say that it comes to us now through baptism in the sacraments. This indwelling trinity where we become his holy temples. This is the peace because only God is the source. And if God is the source, then who can take it away? If God is for us, who can be against is the way that St. Paul put it. This is the peace promised to us by Christ. But it's a peace that needs no further explanation in terms of our desires. We want it because we want harmony. We want the things of the world too, we, the, the, the pieces the world understands, I mean. We don't want war. We don't want poverty. We don't want suffering. No, that's fine. But this peace is an end in and of itself. We desire harmony. We desire integration. We want to feel a sense of being at peace within ourselves and with the world around us. Most of all, if we contemplate this gift deeply enough, as St. Augustine did, we'll discover what he discovered, that our hearts are restless until they rest in God alone, because God alone is our peace. And he's promised us not to leave us orphaned. Christ has overcome the world and thus has overcome the problems that are beyond our control, especially death, for he is risen. And so he has shown us the way. So this indwelling presence of the triune Godhead is the source of this peace of which Jesus speaks. And once given in the sacraments, it cannot be taken away by force. Not even the devil can take this peace away by force. There is nothing that can take it away. Nothing external to the soul, that is. And here's the key. Because Satan is very crafty and clever. He and his evil demons, even though they know they cannot take this peace by force, they do not give up. They may not be able to take it away by force, but he can trick us into giving it away freely. How does he do that? How and why would we listen to an enemy who's tricking us into giving away something that can be found nowhere else. This is his guile and his craftiness. This is why he is the prince of this world, why he's still the ruler of this present darkness, because he knows how to do that. So let's talk now about how we lose this peace why we would give away freely through trickery something which otherwise could not be taken from us. Well, the first way that we can lose this peace, this indwelling trinity, is the obvious way, and that is through sin, especially sins which we haven't repented from. In the same chapter of John's Gospel, in chapter 14, Jesus makes clear that he wants his followers to keep the commandments Indeed, that is how they will prove their love for him. For he says, if you will love me, you will keep the commandments. 
So, in proving our love for Jesus, this is how we receive the gift of Jesus, the gift of love, the gift of his mercy that brings us this peace. So, if that's how we are brought the gift of peace, then we can conclude with, with great certainty that the way that we lose this peace is precisely by breaking the commandments, by sinning, by sinning especially without repentance. Sin is how we lose peace. This is the main way, the most powerful way. Because when we sin, we tell God, God, ordinarily you're right, but in this case, this behavior that you have called sinful seems me to be good, and therefore I am going to do it. This is what Eve said to God in the garden. The fruit looked good to the eye, and so I ate of it. In other words, she was saying, Lord, this fruit that you said was forbidden to me looked good. And if it looked good to me, then it is good. And who are you to say otherwise? I have replaced you in this instance, because I have decided for myself that this is good. When a culture sins like that, determining for itself its own self-determination, its own decision of what is right and what is wrong, that is a culture that has lost its sense of God and its sense of sin. You know, in the book of Exodus, that book can be summed up in one sentence because the entire book is about one thing, how Moses is leading Israel out of Egypt. He's able to achieve that goal physically. He physically ends their slavery, but he can't free Israel from Egypt morally or spiritually. They're enslaved to the gods, the idols of Egypt, which represent the deadly sins, which represent sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which represents the desires of the flesh that they're tied to. I remember reading the book of Exodus, and I couldn't figure out why the Israelites were so stupid and foolish. If I saw nine plagues, the tenth being the angel of death passing over and slaying the firstborn, then if I walk through a river when the seas part, or, or a sea where the seas part, and I follow a pillar of fire, I'd believe in God. And I couldn't figure out why the Israelites were so blind, why they complained and wanted to go back to Egypt where they were slaves and where their enemies awaited them to destroy them. Time and time again, the Israelites complained against God and yearned, we're told, for the flesh pots back in Egypt. In fact, when they worship Apis, the, the golden calf at Mount Sinai, when Moses is bringing down the Ten Commandments, that's, a, that's an orgy that they're engaging in. When It's a fertility cult. That's what they're doing when they're worshiping that idol. And they're living out their carnal desire, as St. Paul calls it. They're proving why they could not receive or know God because they were so tied to the flesh. And so the lesson of Exodus is simple. Getting Israel out of Egypt physically is easy. Getting Israel out of Egypt spiritually is hard. And even when God parts the seas, even should he rise from the dead, 
when those people who are tied to the pleasures of the world try to see him, they will not be able. They will not know him. That's why Jesus says, not as the world gives, this peace do I give. And that is why one of the main causes of this loss of peace is sin. During Lent, the church has us meditate on the book of Exodus. Because as Exodus is talking about getting Israel out of Egypt, Lent is talking about getting Egypt out of Israel, out of us, the new Israel, God's people. That's why we do penances. That's why we give things up. It isn't that chocolate is evil or pop is evil or watching sports is evil or Facebook is evil, although those things all can be. It's more that we are concerned about being tied too closely to the things of the earth and feeding too much that carnal desire, hungering more for Egypt than we do for the promised land, which is heaven, our true homeland. Listen to what John Paul II said in an apostolic exhortation that he wrote in the early 1980s on the Sacrament of Reconciliation. He says this, The loss of the sense of sin is thus a consequence of the denial of God, not only in the form of atheism, but also in the form of secularism. If sin is the breaking off of one's filial, meaning childlike, relationship to God, in order to situate one's life outside of obedience to him, then to sin is not merely to deny God. To sin is also to live as if God did not exist, to eliminate him from one's daily life. So to justify sin and any culture that does that is justifying godlessness. And when this happens, we bring on destruction because to live apart from God is absurd. It's to try to have life apart from its source, to have order apart from its source, to have truth apart from its source, to have beauty apart from its source. It's impossible to deny God and to lose the sense of sin is to live in utter depravity and absurdity. And I know I'm speaking hypothetically here. Of course, no culture would ever really try to do that, right? Because any culture that did, cultural destruction. Just as if we lose our sense of sin, we too bring about our own destruction and lose our sense of peace because we've lost it at its source. Another way that we lose peace is to be owned by our passions because our passions enslave us. If we follow the slogan, it feels right, do it, that's the best way to become a slave. That's the quickest way to lose one's freedom. And that's why Nike and other marketing executives offer us that slogan because they know that. That's what they want a consumer population enslaved to their product so they can make maximum profit. They can guarantee it. Is that the source we want to place our trust? Or do we wish to place our trust in God? God calls us to put to death the passions, or at least to bring them under control, to integrate them according to our will and our intellect, to the dictates of right reason. When we do not do this, we will not know peace. 
Our passions will move us like a ship on the ocean without an anchor. Moved here and there, to and fro, and eventually that ship will be swamped. Or it will run aground of a reef or shallow waters. But whatever the case may be, it will not reach its destination. Another way that we lose peace is by not controlling our thoughts. And when we don't do this, this leads to worry, anxiety, fear, discouragement, anger, etc. Our imagination is the devil's playground. Why? Because think about it. When we think about the future or the past, we're thinking about things that are not real. That's the one thing the future and the past have in common. They seem like polar opposites. But they share this one thing in common. Neither are real. God is the God of reality. He's the God who works in the present grace-filled moment. And Satan knows that. And he hates God with all of his being. And he hates those who bear God's image. So he wants us to work in the realm of fantasy or imagination. In the realm of the unreal. In the realm of darkness. Because that's his realm. So when we look at the future, it's going to seem foreboding. It's going to seem frightening, out of our control. And indeed, there may be good reasons. He will use real things to cause us this anxiety. Save one little teeny-weeny difference. The one thing that he doesn't do is present us that future under God's providence. He makes us think about that future without God and God's grace acting at that moment. Because God will only act in the present moment. Only this present moment is real. Thus, only in this present moment does he have his, is it the grace-filled moment. So, there may be something bad that's coming down the pike. Maybe economically we're in for another depression. Maybe all these cataclysms are going to rip our country apart. Maybe. But what Satan doesn't want us to do is to look at these future events, knowing that when they're now, in the here and now, in the present moment, they will be here with God's guiding hand and grace and providence taking care of his children. That's what he doesn't want us to think about. That's how he disrupts our peace. Same with the past. He wants us to be hung up on the past, to cry over spilled milk, to worry about something that we can no longer change, to live with that regret. When all we need is reconcile, if that's what's needed, and bury the past in the dead past, because it is dead and we are dead to it. The world of the imagination is where he suggests and inflates all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of strife and trouble, He exaggerates, distorts, and perverts and warps what we know to be true in the present so that we fear in the future. I had a spiritual director who tried to tell me that I was a negative person. And I said to her, I'm not negative. I'm a realist. I remember telling her this. I'm not negative. I'm a realist. This is how the real world works. And it took her a lot of prayer and anxiety, I'm sure, a lot of struggle and travail to finally get me to see that I wasn't being a realist. Indeed, I was being negative. I was entertaining negative thoughts. I wasn't controlling them. They were controlling me. 
A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to France, and it was a very difficult trip. I had to go over there to do research for my dissertation, and I don't speak the language. So I was on my own, and while I was over there, sure enough, I met with a great many difficulties. But before I left, the Holy Spirit did inspire one wise thing in me. He had me bring a journal. And what I did is every day I added an entry into that journal, especially writing down the things that were causing me anxiety and worry, large things, small things, things like where was I going to do my laundry, where was I going to shop, where was I going to eat, uh, large things like how was I going to navigate the archives. One, two days into country, my camera broke the camera that I needed to take pictures of my documents. Without that camera, I'd have to bring bagfuls of euros into the archives and photocopy the documents, which would take forever and would lengthen my process there by weeks, if not months. I needed the camera, and here it was broken. I found out when I went online that there are two places in the entire city that sold cameras, and one of them was so far away from where I was, I didn't even know where it was, clear across the city. The other one, the other location, do you know where it was? Right around the corner, three or four minutes walking distance from where I was staying. And the day I went in there to get the camera, I walked right up to the camera that I originally wanted to purchase back in the States, but, the, but it was so popular, um, what's the name of that store, not Office Depot, one of those stores uh, had sold out, didn't have any, and so I had to buy the next uh, camera. Uh, the next best camera. But when I was there in France, I was able to buy the camera that I originally wanted, and it took the same batteries as my camera that broke and the same memory card. Everything worked out. Here I was worried, how am I going to find a camera? How am I going to get the camera that I need? It was right around the corner. God thought of everything. And I realized quickly when I was over there that my time in France was not about getting my dissertation research done as much as it was about learning to trust God, learning to control my thoughts. And journaling was something that really helped me, and so I recommend that for you. Because when I journaled and wrote down my worries, I could see and go back to discover just exactly how God answered them. I'm convinced St. Paul knew about this trick of the devil, I'm convinced that St. Paul knew we needed to control our thoughts. Because listen to what he says to his letter to the Philippians. This isn't in your notes, so you may want to write this down. Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, we'll start at verse 4. Where first he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So that's the first thing. He tells us to rejoice always. Well, how do we do that? He tells us in verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 8, he says this, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, gracious, excellent, praiseworthy, think about these things. You see, he knew. 
This is the key to our happiness. We must control our thoughts, and when we detect a negative thought entering in our minds, we have to correct it immediately and replace it with positive thoughts, thoughts that are excellent or praiseworthy. Failing to discipline our minds is exactly how concerns or worries will fill us. Reminds me of a quote of Montaigne, famous French philosopher, who says, My life is filled of worries, 5% of which actually happen. In other words, 95%, he figured, of his worries never even came to pass. And I realized when I was journaling how little I paid attention to the prayers that God answered, and how often my forecast of the future was wrong. I came to find out indeed that I was a negative person, not just a realist. So we must control our thoughts because he suggests things to our imagination that when we entertain and take hold, we will be overwhelmed with anxiety. And that's exactly what he wants. Another way of losing our peace is having false priorities. We please ourself more than our interest is in pleasing God. We make ourselves busy with things that do not necessarily please God. These things may not be bad in and of themselves, but if we don't stop to ponder whether or not we do them to please God or ourselves, then we'll most certainly get preoccupied with false priorities. We know a priority is false when, in pursuing it, we do harm or damage to another good, another responsibility that we have. So maybe our priority is in getting money. Well, we need money to live. That's good. But if we start harming our relationship with our children or our spouse or God, because that's all we're doing is thinking about money, that's all we're doing is trying to earn money, then we've got a false priority. Maybe our priority is our health. But if that's all we think about is our health, or if we start getting vain about our bodily appearance, now we're doing damage to our inner integrity, our need for humility, and our relationship with God. That's a false priority. We need to learn how to discern God's will and see what his plans are and seek to please him in all things. When we have false priorities, what we do is we set up expectations that are our own inventions. We place them ahead of God's. And we assume that because we've developed them, that we are capable of attaining them. And in our pride, we set up expectations for ourselves, or especially our children, that are unrealistic. And as they're not founded, we get filled with anxiety and worry and concern. When this happens, that's when we know we have a false priority. We need to be detached from the outcome and let God worry about those things and spend more time seeking to know his mind on the matter rather than our own. We will learn more about how to do that in the ensuing weeks as we learn about gaining peace and sustaining it. Because the best way to learn God's will and God's mind is to spend time with him in prayer, in meditation. That's the best way. And then finally, one of the ways that we lose our peace is that we are control freaks, especially in America. We assume that I am the Lord instead of Jesus. I am in control instead of him. And sure enough, a control freak, anyone who desires control apart from Jesus is a freak because it'll never happen. We want to be in control of things that are completely out of our control. 
I can especially speak from a male perspective. Men are problem solvers. We're task managers. We want to handle the problem. Sometimes our spouse wants to talk to us and just share with a problem, and that's all they want is just to talk about it. But as men, we want to solve it. We tell them, here's what you're going to do. You're going to pick up the phone. You're going to call your friend Susie, and you're going to tell her such and such, and this is how we're going to handle it, when in fact that might not be what our spouse wants. They just simply want to vent something. When we become task managers, control freaks, perfectionists, we develop, again, these expectations out of pride and we assume that we have the power located in us to take care of them. That it is up to us to fix our problem or someone else's. There's a story of Jesus giving a man a rock and telling him to take the rock up to the top of the hill. So the man gets the rock, puts it in a wheelbarrow, and he heads up to the hill to take his rock up there to do what Jesus told him. While he's heading up the hill, he sees a friend, and his friend says, Hey, are you going up the hill? Can I put my rock in your wheelbarrow? Sure. And so he does. He goes a little way further. He sees someone else. Hey, I see you have a couple rocks in your wheelbarrow. Do you mind taking my rock up the hill? Sure, the man says, because he thinks he's being nice. He puts that rock in his wheelbarrow as well. Pretty soon, he's not even halfway up the hill, and his wheelbarrow is full of rocks as he's seeking to help people carry their rocks to the top of the hill. His wheelbarrow gets so heavy and unwieldy, he can't manage it. And that's when Jesus appears and asks him, what do you think you're doing? Man, the man says, look, Lord, I'm trying to get these rocks to the top of the hill like you told me, and I can't do it. You've given me a task that's beyond my control, and it's causing me all this grief. Jesus says, I gave you this task? Yes, the man says, and blames him. You gave me this task. And then Jesus corrects him. I told you to bring your rock up to the top of the hill. I didn't tell you to bring anybody else's but your own. They have their own rocks, so they, all, they have their own means of bringing them to the hill. It was not your concern to intervene into their situation and take on their burdens yourself. And that's why you're overwhelmed. And so, in like fashion, we can do the same. When we think we have the power to fix our own life, we then think it's up to us to fix everybody else's. And we begin bearing their burdens, a burden that we were never called to bear. So these are the ways that we can gain these false expectations. These are the ways that we can lose our peace. These are the ways that we lose sight of how God is acting in our life. Dr. John Mark Miravalli, he debated one of the best-known atheists in the country, a man named Dan Barker. And the, the atheist said something that kind of struck me. His main argument was this. He said, God does not answer our prayers. And when he said that, I remember thinking that there was a time in my life when I believed and felt the exact same way, that God does not answer my prayers. And it made me angry. I wondered, where is he? Why is he not answering? Jesus said he would answer me. Seek and you shall find. Knock it shall be opened unto you. I was seeking and knocking and my prayers weren't being answered. Now, however, I have a completely different perspective. It seems that God answers all of my prayers. 
In fact, he's so good at answering my prayers, I'm being very careful of what I pray for because I know I very well might get it and I better make sure it's a good thing. And so I wondered, listening to this debate, what has happened? Why did I at one point in time in my life think that God didn't answer me, whereas now I think and see that he does? And there are two possibilities. One possibility is that earlier in my life, God was just simply too busy handling affairs in the universe, other people's affairs, and he forgot about me and didn't know about me. And lo and behold, he figured out, caught up with me one day and said, oh, I remember creating that guy. Look at all those prayer requests that I forgot to answer. Boy, there's a whole boatload of them. I better get busy. That's one possibility. But I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that I think that possibility is extremely remote. There is another possibility, however. That possibility is that God has always been answering my prayers. But my heart, like the Israelites, was too tied to Egypt to see him even when he's parting the Red Seas. So let us be open to him and to receive his peace and to have the eyes and ears and heart that's prepared to receive him so that we don't lose ours and so that we can gain and maintain his. Let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. Thanks for listening to The Movement. To find out more about Holy Family School of Faith's mission to lead others to Jesus through friendship, good conversation, and the rosary, head over to our website at schooloffaith.com.